Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. But I'd also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is DJ Butler. Dave and I almost met at Superstars this past year, but due to unfortunate circumstances, it didn't come together. So now we're finally able to do the interview I wanted to do back then. Dave was a novelist living in Rocky Mountains. He worked as a securities lawyer at a major international firm and in-house at two multinational semiconductor manufacturers before taking up writing fiction in 2010. He's a lover of language and languages, a guitarist and self-recorder, and a serious reader. He's uh, published by Bain, Knopf, and Wordfire Press, and obviously through Wordfire is how I got to know him because Kevin Anderson. He writes adventure fiction for all ages. And from what I saw, I wrote both science fiction and fantasy, of which I read a science fiction story. So um, let's get on with this. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks so much for having me, John. Sure. So like I said, we almost met at, at Superstars. So what's your relationship with uh, Superstars? So my relationship uh, began, uh, oh man, I'm going to forget the year, 2016 or something like this. So uh, Kevin Anderson brought the Wordfire booth. So for a time, Kevin would travel uh, as, as the owner of a bookstore that would go to uh, Comic-Cons. And it would sell Wordfire books, but it would also sell books by uh, friends. So, for example, the year I saw him at Salt Lake, they had, I believe they had Brandon Sanderson, and uh, they might have had a Brandon and also a Jim Butcher signing, I think. Probably, which, yeah. Yeah, which, which are, you know, you have to coordinate that. I mean, you get like a thousand people line up to get a signature for that. So, um, at the time I was self-published, I had my signed Random House contract, the Nuff deal, and, uh, but, but I was still... Those books were not out. And so I was going to events like FanX or Denver Popular Culture Convention or whatever, right, to sell books. Um, right. And it's one of these scrappy little indie writers, right? Um, and so you get a little cheap table and you make your poster up and you're like back there in our artist alley and you're like, hey, come talk to me. Uh, I did that for years. And um, Kevin came out to, it was uh, actually called uh, oh, I forget. There was a year when we had two Comic-Con events and WesterCon in the same summer. So it wasn't the, the Salt Lake Comic-Con. It was the other one. It might have been called FantasyCon. It only ran one year. Right. And, and Kevin was there. And uh, I, I, I approached him. I met Kevin first by going into a sitting on a panel that I was not invited to be on. So I, I, my, my friend said, you've written some steampunk novels. You should just come sit on the panel. No one's going to know. So I said, all right. So I took my uh, pant, you know, went up to the front, sat down. <laughs> no one stopped me. Um, I'm not saying that's tactical advice you should follow, but I'm, I'm also not saying it isn't. So I sat next to Kevin and I, I, he pitched his book. I pitched my book. We then had a great discussion about steampunk. And then I, I said, hey, listen, uh, I have some, I have Random House books coming out. And I also have some existing self-published books. And I, I'd love to publish my self-published stuff with you guys. And so I gave him those books, uh, copies, and he handed those to his then editor and, uh, and that was that, right? Um, a couple months later, I saw him again. I think he came back for the second. So, right? so I saw him in like, uh, no, it was 4th of July weekend, and then again in September. So in September, he came back, and I said, hey, let me buy you breakfast. Let's talk about this. And, and, uh, and, and they, they agreed to publish the books, right? So actually, over breakfast, it was Kevin and his editor, and I said, hey, what did you think of them? And it was pretty clear the editor hadn't read them. And rather than say that, he said, we should totally publish them. And so, great. <laughs> so we moved ahead. <laughs> uh, so I, I, 
I continue to be published by Wordfire. Kevin is such a good guy, by the way. Yeah. Like in 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 life, you will meet many slimy people. Kevin is not slimy. I've I've seen him just be a decent guy and take positions on matters of conscience. And you know, I like Kevin Anderson very much. I was so I traveled with the Wordfire booth. I continue until it became Bard's Tower, yeah. and I did that for a while. I uh, continue to be published. Those same books and some sequels are still published by Wordfire. I spent three years as the acquisitions editor for Kevin for Wordfire Press and kind of de facto general counsel. And, uh, you know, in that capacity, I came out uh, to superstars, I think maybe, maybe three times, maybe three years running, I came out. The, and the superstars community is great, right? And if, if that's who's basically listening to this podcast, you don't need me to tell you that. But, but people are, it's sort of, when I go, I went again this year, right? It's sort of like, hey, there's this big family re- reunion. And even though it's not exactly my family, it's like I've been invited to somebody else's family reunion, and they're very friendly and very welcoming, and I have a great time. So I went again this year because I am now a consulting editor with Bain Books. And uh, I, I, I can't remember if I was standing in for Tony or somebody, but, or if I was invited in my own capacity. So, yeah, so I've been four times to Superstar. I've never been directly involved in writers and illustrators of the futures, but, but you know how that crowd is. Like the Superstars crowd has a lot of, of people there. Yeah. And so and the founders were all, are all basically the founders are all judges like Kevin Anderson, right. Rebecca, um, right. Dave uh, Farland was until he Dave passed. Farland, and same thing with Eric Flint was a judge until he passed. Eric Brandon Flint. Sanderson's a judge. Yep. And, and many of those guys, uh, Dave, Kevin, Rebecca, uh, are friends of mine. Tim, Tim Powers, uh, is another guy. I, I'm getting careful calling them friends. They might say, oh, Dave's not my friend. I, I tolerate him. He's an associate. But I think of them as friends. They know who I am, at least. Uh, and so I have a lot of association with uh, win- winners and judges uh, of the contest. Yeah, the thing with this podcast, it gets minimal 2 million listens a week. And so nice. it, it's more than superstars, but it's the aspiring writer, aspiring artist. And it's um, it's heard in like uh, 175 countries or so. It's it's really popular all over the world. So cool. it's something that, you know, the purpose of it, following what uh, started back in 1983 when Owen Hubbard created the contest, was to provide that help, you know, to aspiring writer and artist. So that's what we do. And so by, I was really, you know, we met because Kevin put out, I said, Kevin, is anybody that would be interested in being on the podcast? So he put out the call, you responded, and then just for whatever reason, I don't even know why it happened because I did a lot of interviews that weekend or that week. But uh, now we're finally, you know, getting together. But having read your book and then your bio, it's, um, I'm fascinated about your story or what what I started imagining your story was, how that, that all came together. So like I sent my questions to you, that's what I'm interested in in discussing there. So so I, the book I read was Abbott and Darkness. So when I'm reading that and then your own history with with uh, corporate life, inter, you know, the, um, the various institutions that are global in, in scope. So how much... You know, the whole subject of of, um, Abbott, you know, maintaining his integrity in a world that's not relishing, not rolling around in a whole lot of integrity, you know, and I I was fascinated how you dealt with that whole thing there and wasn't sure how much of it was what you had to deal with yourself in corporate world or what. So let's just talk about that a bit. Yeah. So the setup of the book, right, is inspired by the East India Company and sort of that era of big trading companies. Right, which is what I got from that at the end of, oh, this is the East India Trading Company. Yeah, so there's an intrinsic, massive conflict at the heart of those companies, which is 
in the era of sale, you give a for-profit organization basically sovereign powers. Right. You say, hey, go run your business over in India or over in North America or wherever, right? And, okay, we're going to provide oversight, but we're six months away. So what oversight are we going to give you? And you have soldiers. So, like, if the if the Raja of Majpur doesn't want to agree to your terms, you, you, you go fight him, right? So these companies turn themselves into almost sovereign nations. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, did some things. I mean, well, so the company, the whole history, right? Like, there's a lot of bad things that were done. Uh, not everybody was equally bad. Right. And, and so the sort of, you can think about like, well, today's world, right? My, like my experience, maybe your experience, but a lot of people's experience is, hey, I, I have to get through my daily life and I have a family that I got to care for, right? Or I have people who are depending on me. I have to provide for myself. And man, time and again, I find myself dealing with these big institutions that are corrupt, that are intrinsically corrupt. How do I be a good person in that context, right? How do, how do I add value? And when I sort of, as I come to realize that some of my own advantages derive from that corruption even, like I didn't really mean, mean to, but like I'm in a privileged position because, you know, people are doing corrupt things and that's the machine I came into. And, and how do I fight against that without ruining my life, without getting crushed by the machine, without losing my soul, without uh, putting my family at risk, right? Right. Sort of the, the big questions. So, um, yeah, I saw that. And it's, it's interesting how you took it and you put it into the world of science fiction, off-world where it was very easy to see that you're a long distance away. You've got the United States gives a chit to this company. Says, okay, good. This is yours. As long as you follow these guidelines, which they may or may not even have to follow. And so the senior constitution becomes the bylaws of the corporation rather than the bylaws of the United States. And now you've got this person enters in there who comes in with, his sense of right and wrong and personal integrity and yep. how does one maintain that in a world that's that's where i was interested in, in discussing this thing here what you know what you dealt with on this if there's a you know a personal message or your own something you're trying to get across there because it's at least to me it was it was very clear that it's an op, like you're like you come across as an optimist you know, um, and I, this is my first time actually speaking with you, but from reading your book, I said, okay, this guy's an optimist because in a world that's full of immorality, you can still maintain your own sense of right and wrong. And how do you navigate in that environment? Yeah. Put into a science fiction trope that makes it maybe more palatable or it's easy for somebody to, to, if they find themselves succumbing to some of those wrongnesses to be able to look at it and say, okay, well, that, yeah, I can say that can happen. And, you know, so did you have any particular thought about that? Yeah. I, in this sense, I think it's fair to call me an optimist. I think that's right. I believe that a person can make a difference. I think that, I think that over time corruption is self-defeating. Uh, I think, I think corruption and, uh, you know, a corrupt and oppressive power structures can do, in fact, do do awful, evil things um, to the humans who are their victims, but also to the humans who are supporting them. And I think in the long term, uh, goodness wins. And I think that, you know, you, you as a human, you know, what is, what is your moral duty? I, I think you're trying to create various kinds of surplus, you know, Sur- surplus of wealth, surplus of time, surplus of of uh, peace and freedom, 
and surplus of, of even spiritual uh, goods, right? And, uh, and, and share those with people, right? right? And, and, and I guess fundamentally on a, on a real basic level, and this is, you know, sometimes in books, You'll, you'll write characters and you'll play around with characters who really don't believe something that you do, right? Who are really different from you. But here's something that I think John Abbott really believes and that I really believe. And right? John Abbott is the principal character in, yeah. in this yeah. book we're talking about. He is, he is a member of the world's sexiest professions. Uh, he is an accountant. So here's something I really believe, right? Okay, like the... The basic evil is to deprive other people of their free will. To force people to do stuff is the basic evil. Right. And and I think you can live without doing that, except just very a little bit just at the edges. You know, there may, there may be maybe we need to enforce laws. Like if someone wants to run around picking pockets all day, you're going to have to stop them for everyone else's sake. But other than just a very small amount, I think you can live and have a good life creating value for others, right? Living with a, an abundance mentality. There is enough for everyone yeah, um, and, and more than enough, right? And, and without coercing people. And that's, this is a story about a guy trying to live that way inside a system that says, Hey, get rich. You're one of you're one of the insiders. You can get rich. Uh, just screw these guys. Screw the natives. Right? Get rich. Yeah. So, so I believe in this story. Right? This means a lot. Okay. Good. That's yeah. Because that's. I mean, I enjoy story. I love. I mean, I read a lot of books right now because of this podcast. But I enjoy a story where when there's. It's it's not just smothering me in a message, but it's it's a good story that kind of like okay, it makes sense. You know, you can have a good ending, even without being very glib about, you know, the existing circumstances of a very criminal environment. You know, yeah. you got the one end where you've got the heavy duty explosions and firearms and mercenaries, and it's all based around you know, one good guy that just bullets were not destined for his body, or if they are, they're not destined for important parts of his body. And so he survives, right. he's back at it again, somehow or another recovers very fast. And he's got full, you know, full um, ability to do it once more, maybe even a little bit more now, because now he's, now he means it, you know, that whole type of storyline. And that's not what this is. Right. I mean, it was obviously right. harm comes to his his family and and threat, and um, so in that respect, it's it's a pretty standard um, thriller type trope. But then you put it into a science fiction, but then you put this other thing too, where it is just like you know, mild mannered Horace, you know, who's going along there. But so you got an accountant who now takes on yeah. this high flute and stuff is like. You know, he's never owned a gun. He's got, you know, he's like, he has to do it somehow. And it, it's pretty plausible how you did it, given that it's in a science fiction setting, you know, down the road. So, yeah, thank um, you. yeah so, so part of what I like to do in this podcast is like advice and tips to the aspiring writer in this case. So you started in, in 2010, having had a successful career with your, you know, with law and um, corporate law, intergalactic almost, at yep. least interplanetary, at least intercontinental, I should say. But um, so, what would you give as as a, as a tip or advice from yourself then as a writer? Then we're going to go into like what you know we talk about when you go to superstars. Yeah, I um, I have lots of tips. Let me, I'm going to start with this one, uh, but only, only because I'm riffing off the word you use, okay? So I, I'm not saying this is the most important thing or if I have only one tip, this is it. But this is a tip, and I think it's important, actually. So 
when you go out there in the world talking about your books, what you are competing for is not people's dollars. It's their time. Right. Their time is worth so much more than their dollars, right? Your book might cost them, I mean, maybe it's 99 cents, but like it's no more than 30 bucks at most for a big hardback, right? So like it's $10 or something. It's going to take them more time to read your book than it's going to take them to earn the 30 bucks or the 99 cents, right? That you are saying, spend 10 hours Ten hours are very precious, and so people have people are looking for any reason to say no. They're looking for any reason to turn to turn you off and walk away. Right? They have to. They right. only have, we have so many hours in our life, and if, if every single person who came up and said, "I want your time, I want your time, I want your time," I'd never do anything that I want to do. Right? So, here's my tip. Never call yourself an aspiring writer. And the reason is when you do, you license the person you're talking to to ignore you. Because what you're saying is, I'm not a writer. I'm an aspiring writer. And if they're nice, they may still talk to you, right? But you've just told them they don't have to. Because you're just, you're just an aspiring thing. So when someone says, you know, what do you do? Why are you here? I'm a writer, period. And they say, oh, have I read anything that you've written? Maybe the answer is you haven't actually finished anything. Fine. You say, you know, probably not. I'm working on a uh, space opera novel right now, right? It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like Star Wars, but good, right? So yeah, that's my that's one of my that's one of my tips. Good. All right, that's a good tip there. Um, that actually makes makes good sense in that stuff, and I really like what you're saying there. Like you're not vying for somebody's dollar; you're vying for their time. You know, that's yeah. that's a, a bit of a. Um, I know some people get into you know trying to convince somebody that. No, I'm worth the four ninety nine. I'm worth the nine ninety nine, whatever it is. But in actual right. fact, I'm worth you know part of your time. Yeah. In fact, I want you to try the ten hours. What you'll find is that I'm worth the relationship, even if we never meet. Right? You and I can have a relationship because I'm going to pour my heart out in the book. And you know, if they resonate with you and they entertain you, when you go, wow, you know. Uh, it's rare that you keep reading an author who you feel like you would like, right? You read the author and you get in there, I like what they, this feels like, you know, the person's worldview is sympathetic. And I, you know, the, like, I like this person. I think one of Brandon Sanderson's great aspects is he just seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, I think that's important to his marketing. Or somebody like James Owen. You've seen James Owen at like Superstars. If that guy were like, you know, crabby and standoffish and like it wouldn't be, he'd have no power. His, his power is all in his charm and his approachability, right? His charisma. That's for sure. Yeah, he's, um, we had, a, we had a, a fun chat when I was out there on, on the podcast. And when I've, I've known Brandon for a while, when he, I was a, a guest lecturer at his um, creative writing course at BYU oh, um, some years ago. And after that one, <clears throat> I cornered and said, look, I want you to be a judge. And I don't have time. I don't have time. So I showed him more history about it and, and all the different people that have been judges since the beginning. And he was like, wow. And so he realized, and he said, yeah, I was honorable mention. I was ready to quit writing. And um, I got an honorable mention. And that's what made me decide I could keep on going. Good thing he did. He said, I was, I was seriously considering becoming a plumber. So uh, <laughs> it's definitely a good thing. The world is a lot better because uh, he continued on as, as, a, as a writer. Well, I don't, he might have been a great plumber, though. <laughs> no doubt he could have uh, one, one hole at a time, but this time right. he's able to do a tad bit more. So now you're a, um, 
an instructor at Superstars. Yeah, I have been invited a few times. Yeah, so what is it you normally talk about there? What makes you like the a guest that, that they want you to, to speak? What do you normally talk about? John, I think I'm mostly a guest because of the charity of other people. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, I would, um, I would have agreed with that if you were invited once, but you've been invited multiple times. So um, I think it's gone beyond charity. Well, you're very kind. You're very charitable. Um, there are a few things I've spoken about. I'm trying to remember what I talked about this year. Um, I did a presentation about writing muscular prose, uh, which is sort of a self-editing skill, like when you've written the manuscript, how do I go through and edit in a way that maximizes my prose? So, so there's no useless prose, and every sentence, ideally every word, like punches at its maximum weight, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of that is about cutting out well, really, it starts with seeing clearly, looking at your your sentence, your paragraph, and seeing what you wrote in there that you don't need, because you said it before, or your reader can infer it, right? Or because it has to be true. Uh, and and some of it is also seeing, like, word choice. Can I pick more effect? What words are weak? What, and what can I replace them with? And some of that is about word order, too, like, an ideal sentence grabs you at the beginning and then punches you at the end, right? And so all of that is involved in writing prose that will really grip a reader and, and not let the reader go. So I did about, a, I think, a two-hour presentation on that. I also presented on how to uh, maximize the benefit you get out of conventions. I think uh -huh. that was the thing we talked about. Um, I was on a couple of panels, and then I also um, did, uh, what do they call them, like mentoring, I can't remember, 15 or half an hour slot uh, where someone would just come and talk about whatever they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the things I did. Uh, what have we done in the past? To be honest, I don't remember. It's been a few years since my last time. Um, does your so I'm, does I'm your forgetting. does your history as a lawyer does that ever come into play there on, at Superstars? Because I know that a lot of people are always asking questions. Yeah, I occasionally I occasionally get put on like lawyer panels. I try and hard not to be seen that way. <laughs> <laughs> you keep your your gray pinstripe suits in your closet. Right. Locked up in your closet back at home. Right. I, I, that was like a youthful mistake. I want to be forgiven for it. <laughs> so um, I think I have done a, a panel. I, there, I remember I was in one panel about, um, I think, social media. with. I remember Kevin and Dave Farland were on it. And we had conversation about like mailing lists. I mean, this would have been like 2019 or something. Yeah. Year. Um, pre-pandemic pre-pandemic yeah for sure um and and i'm happy to be invited back anytime like i say i i love the I love people um it feels like somebody else's really big happy family and and i'm happy to show up and hang out at the reunion you know yeah it's definitely that so now you've got science fiction and fantasy is what I'm familiar with. Like, are those your genres of choice or do you do other stuff too? I do actually. Um, so I've got uh, a standalone thriller called the wilding probate. It's kind of Longmire meets Nancy Drew. Uh, <laughs> and that's published by immortal works. Uh, it's about a 16 year old, 16 year old girl whose father is a small town lawyer. Um, it's set in a fictional county somewhere in the Washington, Oregon, Idaho area. With a fictional father, tell, obviously. Yeah, with a fictional father. <laughs> and her father, Earl McRae, he's, um, he's, a, he's a nice guy, but he kind of never lived up to expectations. So he's like a 
low motivation, small town lawyer, getting by, owns a bowling alley. His law office is in the back of the bowling alley, right? And but his daughter's much more ambitious, and she kind of runs his business. And she's finishing her associate's degree during her senior year of high school, and uh, he gets caught up in this uh, revenge plot. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Yeah, no fantasy at all, no ray guns. Um, I've got uh, my, my comp series is uh, is middle reader, so it is steampunk. It's you know sci-fi fantasy for like basically eleven year olds. Um, but yeah, science fiction and fantasy is, is where my heart has been since I was eight. Wow. Um, I I thought from from the age of eight, basically right through till I was about twenty, that I was going to end up being a science fiction fantasy writer. Um, I took creative writing classes. I I wrote a terrible novel in high school right i did all the stuff uh and and then i punted because in college i met this girl i wanted to marry her she didn't want to be poor that seemed fair so so i went to law school (laughs) (laughs) yeah but then i got back to it in 2010 sort of when I was able to, you know, pick up the circle of my younger life again. And, uh, and I'm very glad it's been great to sort of be in fandom, to get books out, to meet, to meet readers, to do, to do all the stuff you do as a sci-fi fantasy. Writer. Yeah. So on, so you do conventions then from what we're talking about. So do you, um, just do the, the local circuit there in, in Colorado, or do you also go to like Atlanta Dragon Con and go to Salt Lake City Fan X and San Diego Comic Cons and Tampa yeah. Comic Con, that type of stuff? So from 2015, maybe, to the pandemic, I went to cons all over the country. And the reason why was well two things uh my day job i don't want to say anything shocking but i don't make enough money as a science fiction writer for my family of five so i do other stuff (laughs) so (laughs) yeah uh, yeah yeah yet correct okay good so uh i have been a corporate trainer and until the pandemic that meant a lot of travel. And one cool thing about that is that that meant I would go into Barnes and Nobles all over the country and just sign my books. So I had been in almost half of the Barnes and Nobles that exist when they shut down for the pandemic. Right. Um, I don't have proof that I'm the record holder, but I mean, come on. So uh, that was one thing. The other cool thing is that you develop a lot of points, right? Air, airline miles, sure. rent, rental car points. And so I would use them to go to con. And because I was associated, see, this is what I wanted. This is why I approached Kevin, because I said, okay, I'm at my rinking table. And I'm just, you know, as a little platform, I'm like, take me seriously. Take me seriously. It's hard. And, and you have to, like, tell the person the pitch and get them, like, excited about it. And and most of the people never come back into the corner of Author's Alley where you're sitting at your $150 table with five friends jammed at the same table, right? So I said, I want the big platform. I want to be at the same tent that Jim Butcher is at, right? And, and Kevin said, yes, amazing. And I had the frequent flyer miles that I could just go everywhere. And so some of my favorite cons, I, I live in Utah. Some of my con- favorite cons are on the East Coast. Pensacon in Pensacola, Florida. Amazing. If you have a chance to go there, it's not just the event. You know, Pensacola is this little town 
and it's like a navy town, and it's got like Civil War monuments and the Naval Museum and stuff. But it's kind of a quiet little town. And when they have their Comic Con in February, the whole town knows, and the whole town gets involved. And so you come into the airport, and the airport has been reskinned. So they're no longer uh, terminals. Not the right word. Um, the uh, oh freak! I'm gonna threaten the word there. But they don't call it the the Pensacola Airport. They call it the Intergalactic Spaceport. Okay, and so like the the restroom don't have woman silhouette, man silhouette. They have Princess Leia silhouette, stormtrooper silhouette, right, hanging over the the bathroom. Wow, that's awesome! Right, and you like come out and like. The first time I went, I got down. It's a little regional airport, and there's like a guy dressed as Papa Smurf walking around in, you know, in the in the airport. And and the restaurant, there's a restaurant called the Fish House, which I think it's two restaurants. So it's it's an, a big old house which has sort of two houses on one shared porch, like what they sometimes call a dog trot between them. And they will cosplay, like the restaurant will cosplay during the con. So one restaurant will be Hogwarts, right? Wow. right? With change decor and waiters dressed up. And the other restaurant is the USS Enterprise. Okay. What fun. So, yeah, I love, I love Pensacon. And, and I never could have gone but for Kevin and for this fact that I had I'd bust my chops all year teaching business acumen screening and then use the points on the weekends this stuff, right? Or another one I love, and I haven't been able to get there for several years, and I feel bad, uh, but I just haven't, um, is Connecticon in Hartford. Yeah. It's just fantastic. So much fun. And uh, I got friends there. I can't remember now for like four years. The the Roland sister or Jamie Cropo is a uh, Hartford area poet. It, it's wonder. It, it's sort of like I was able to have eight or ten local cons that I'd go back to again and again, right? And uh, yeah, that was that was wonderful. My career is evolving now. I'm not doing that much training i don't have like bottomless frequent flyer miles anymore and so you know some of that's gone away but i've been to con um not in every state but like most wow that's yeah. great because i'm definitely obviously i'm a, I'm a book publisher as well so i do well but it's interesting enough you say you're from utah my mm -hmm. best convention is so like city fanics oh yeah we sell more books there than any other convention. Uh, Dan Farr was just our keynote speaker um, a few weeks ago at the Writers of the Future um, Gala. And he owns, obviously, a Fanex, but he also had just recently bought three more conventions as well. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's just the whole thing on popular culture. Now, one thing I made a note of, too, is uh, languages. Mm. In the, uh, the back of your book, um, there's a whole um, – you have a – a glossary with like with all yeah. the words that you created. So, um, yeah. how'd that come about? Cause that, that was fascinating. You had your whole language that you put in there in your, in the book. I love languages. I discovered that I love them because the state of New Jersey forced me to take an aptitude test when I was 13 and starting it. And they said, okay, you can take a language. And I said, I don't want to. And they said, well, when we say you can, we mean you have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I took Spanish. And I was like, oh, this is fun and not hard and, like, neat. So uh, at this point, you know, the number of languages I've at least dipped my toe into is, like, 30-some. Like, I like languages, and I like to go uh, outside my comfort zone. So, like, you know, uh, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian are pretty the same. German, 
not so different, right? Welsh, not so different. But, you know, classical Egyptian starts to be different. Or uh, Sumerian, where you get into a language that, you know, uh, is an ergative as opposed to a nominative accusative language. Or... Um, so I, can you I, define I, those two terms? Because most people are not going to know that. Uh, so it's a different relationship between the verb and the subject. But most languages are, do not show ergativity, and I don't think any Indo-European ones do. So if you speak German or Spanish or French, like, what is that? It's, just think of it this way. It's a, it's a very alien grammar idea. Or, or like, I started studying uh, Ojibwe two years ago, uh, which is, again, outside Indo-European languages. It's a, I, I wanted to, so I was writing the Witchy War series, which is an epic fantasy set in 19th century America. And so I wanted to be able to credibly use the real languages. And in terms of the European immigrant, that means French and Dutch and Spanish and stuff, right? But also, of course, there are a lot of indigenous languages, right? And so I wanted to learn the specifically Algonquian language. And uh, the biggest surviving Algonquian language is Ojibwe, about 40,000 speakers. And it's so cool. Uh, the, the alphabet is smaller. Yeah. There are fewer letters. And to get your vocabulary out of fewer letters, that tends to mean you have longer words. So here's my example I love, right? In English, you say, I saw six deer. Four syllables. I saw six deer. In Ojibwe, that's uh, which is 14 syllables. Because you have to have longer words to get as many words out of fewer, fewer consonants. So, but it's it's just fun, right? I just love it. Right. So, what's going on in Abbott? So, in Abbott and Darkness, right? So, the basic setup, which we actually haven't talked about in terms of a story, uh, and this book came out last summer. There's this planet. Uh, there's a system called Saravar, and uh, Saravar Alpha has uh, is a very Earth-like planet, and it's got some native species. And it's got these humans on it. The records are a little kind of unclear about exactly when the humans got there. Maybe they came in about the same time as the first company explorers. Not totally. But the humans there speak a pigeon. And what's called Sarovari. Or, or in the language of the pigeon, they'll say, can you, know, can you sedge Or can you sedge And so, so a pigeon, right, P-I-D-G-I-N, is a linguistic phenomenon that you get where two languages interact a lot with each other. Yeah. And, and they create uh, like a, a, a shared language between them. So often they're like a, like a, a trading language, a trading patchwork borrowing some words from here and some words from there to make a simple version that, that people of both cultures can learn. So when they talk to each other, they speak a pigeon. So like Swahili is a, a, a pigeon. Arguably, the most successful pigeon of, in the history of Earth is English. There's an argument that English is not a language. It might just be a pigeon. Huh. Meaning, it's like the the Saxons, but it's also like the French, and it's also like the Danish. And we went ahead and took some Indian words and some Native American words and Welsh and Russian, and we just like happily take vocabulary from anybody. And our and our grammar simplifies over time. So, uh, 
So maybe English is not a language. Maybe maybe it's actually a pigeon. So there's this pigeon on this planet. And basically English plus uh, this, this language that's spoken among the indigenous humans. And that's one of the sort of interesting questions about the it, It's not so much part of the plot as one of the questions that's kind of posed. It's there in the background. It doesn't get directly addressed. Is where do these people come from? And what is this language? Because right. it turns out I didn't make it up. This is actually a real language uh, that I have simplified the words, and then you mix them together into English and uh, simplify some of the grammar. But it's not it, when, when you when they said them when they speak this pigeon, uh, the grammar you use is not all English. Like some of the grammar actually follows the other language, right? Um, so yeah, so that was a lot of fun to write. And uh, in, in one of John's plots, right, one of his tasks he has to overcome is is by the end, uh, in in the climax. So this is a guy who doesn't win by shooting people. Like, right. like if if he has to shoot, he will, but that's not who he is. He wins by striking a deal. And so there's this scene in the end where this kind of frantic negotiation, there's the corrupt company trader and and John trying to, like, basically stop a war and these aliens. And they're speaking this pigeon. And John's only been on the planet, like, three weeks, right? So he's had to having to go along in this language he doesn't perfectly understand trying to find the win-win for the alien and the humans to avoid basically a shooting war. Um, so yeah, so that's Saravari, that's the pigeon language. That's a lot of fun. That's, that was, I mean, it was definitely fun how you did that. And um, there's been other great authors over the years that have, uh, enjoyed languages and creating languages and putting into their fantasy world. Not so much in science fiction. I've experienced, I've, mostly I've experienced it in, in fantasy. So that was, that was fun how you did that in, in science fiction. I'm just curious. Um, I said, this is the Rise to Future podcast. Are you familiar with anything written by, by uh, Ron Hubbard? Uh, I have read part of Dianetics. I think I read Battlefield Earth. But man, it was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. It was. It was centered right around where where Superstars takes place. That's where it actually starts, right there in uh, Colorado Springs, and that's the uh, Tall Peak is is right there. The you know, Pikes Peak is what mm-hmm. takes place. And um, I've talked to several of the judges. That's why I just asked is Eric and Dave and Kevin read it all and they remembered it quite a bit when they had from when they had read it originally um because yeah. kevin learned he said that for him it was a it helped him on developing a pace and how to write action sentences because they're a lot short and short paragraphs as compared to the longer oh, paragraphs which will slow you down brandon said that's how he learned to write action was from that book too and um interesting i've had several authors i think but i was just i was just curious if familiar with any of his his writing at all so um for you know, again, um, for the for the aspiring writer, so you've got all these different sk- skill sets that you establish in your in your life. Um, you start off wanting to be a writer uh, for the sake of you did it all for love. Became a lawyer, a corporate lawyer. Right. Um, threatened your your personal integrity to live within the, the corporate muck that has to that one had to survive in order to be able to get your miles to fly around to all the different conventions all these things yes. added up it's um so now you've obviously taken the different pieces the good the bad and made it into an amalgam that's a a, a positive future for yourself and in a world where there's 
a lot of naysayers, if, if anybody spends any time reading the news, they'll just get within moments, they'll be driven down into apathy. Like it's what's bothered. So what, what's the use you, you got to get before you can't get anymore. And right. um, it's only a crime if you get caught and that other types yep. of mentality. So how have you taken all this stuff you've, that you've learned over your life and, and, and transformed into a, I'm going to call it a second career. Um, just because you didn't publish books before it and is. now you are. So how's that worked for you? Because a lot of people, we've had winners this year in Writers of Future. Our grand prize winner was 69, just turning 70. Um, for him, it was a second career. I mean, he's not dissimilar to yourself. He, he'd always wanted to, but he became a, a programmer, computer programmer. Mm -hmm. And then he retired and revisited writing. So for yourself, like, Tell me your story a little bit so that other people can maybe identify with it and get a little hope that it's not too late. You can still make your dreams come true no matter what your age. Yeah, um, that is true. It, it, it raises an interesting question when you phrase it like that, right? And I think an important one, which is when you get into the writing game, what is your dream? What is the dream you want to make true, right? And uh, I do make money as a writer. It hasn't been my primary source of income. Right. right? It's right. like a nice second job in terms of the money. Um, in terms of like the dollars per hour, it's not a good financial return. Uh, in terms of the, the emotional return, and the return uh, in terms of dividends of beauty and the psychological and spiritual return, oh, yeah, right? That, that for me, is what it's about. Would I be sad to make a million dollars because somebody optioned my movie? That'd be great, right? Right. What I really want to do is tell stories that I believe in and that I care about. And I, I reconciled myself, John, about 10 years ago. I was like 40. I just turned 50 last week. Happy Excellent. birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, when I turned 40, it was about the time I realized, Dave, you are a weirdo. You are going to be a weirdo all your life. You are going to be weird in every crowd you're ever in. And so you just should embrace it. It just has to be okay. And, you know, for me, writing is about finding meaning. It's about saying, I am not here as a fungible economic unit to go be worker who um, Adam Smith in the wealth of nations has this wonderful bit where he talks and he says, how do you make a cheap pin? He says, well, you have one person who draws out the wire. You have a different person who snips the wire. Somebody else turns the pin to make the eye, the eye of the needle. Somebody else sharpens the pin. That's how you make cheap pins. He said, but that's how you make boring people. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> He said, he said, the the plowman, this was his image, the plowman has to understand the field and the plow and has to have a whole bunch of skills. And that's a much more interesting person. And, and for me, writing has been about being the person I want to be. It's describing the world and truth and the human condition as I see it. And, and I'm a weird guy. And there are people who are never going to become my readers because they go, the guy's writing in too complex a fashion. He stuffed this book full of this pigeon. I don't understand it, right? Why is this book 240,000 words long, right? <laughs> there will be people who are never going to be my reader. I am not writing for... I, <sighs> I don't want to, I'm careful not to sound like I'm putting some other writer down, but, but like some writers are producing Big Macs, 
like everybody can eat a Big Mac. I mean, maybe not you're vegan, but like most people, I can eat a Big Mac. Right? Like I'm not doing that. I'm making something that's a little weirder. Only some people are going to read my books and love them. But, but those people do, and it's so wonderful. And I say stuff that I care about and that I believe, right? And, yeah. and then I run into strangers, and they go, oh, you're the guy that wrote that book. Here, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories from my touring Barnes & Noble days. Okay. okay. I was in Bloomington, Indiana for corporate training. And it was two days. So on the evening of the first day, I went to Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And I go in there and there's none of my books on the shelf. So I go to the customer service desk and I say, Hey, um, I didn't see any of my books on the shelf. I'm I'm DJ Butler, right? I um do you but sometimes they get misshelved. Do you show that you have any inventory? Like maybe they get stuck in romance or they get stuck in YA. Things happen. They look on the shelf and they go, oh, yeah, we have one copy for GI. And okay. so she and I go out and we look for it. And we take like 10 minutes and we search the whole store and we're like, where, there's, where is this book? She goes back and looks at her computer again. And she says, oh, it's in the back room. It was already purchased. And I said, oh, do we know the purchaser's name? And do we have her phone number? She said, yes. So we called this person. And I said, look, this is going to sound weird. Okay. Are you the so-and-so who bought a book called Witchy Eye by DJ Butler waiting to pick it up at the Barnes & Noble? And she said, yes. And I said, I'm the author. I happen to be in town. Would you like me to sign the book for you? And she says, that's a Christmas present for my father. And, and we had this like 15-minute conversation about why she thought it would be a great book for her father, right? And telling me about the kind of guy her father was and why, why she thought my book would be a nice fit, right? And then I signed the book, you know, and it was like December 5th, right? So I, Merry, Merry Christmas to John, right? How amazing is that, right? I, I'm never going to sell widgets and have that, uh, that experience. So, um, look, some of, some of your, some of you listeners are going to get into this for the money. That's fine. But if some of you are thinking, no, I want to get into it for the beauty, do it. That's awesome. That's great. And so one last thing here then. So how does somebody find you? Like, obviously, we've been talking about um, the one book here, but how else will somebody, can, how can somebody find you to discover this and well as your other books? So in social media, uh, I'm on Twitter, pretty active. So my handle is David John Butler. John is with an H. Okay. My website is also davidjohnbutler.com. You can email me through the website. Um, those are probably the two easiest ways to just go find me. Um, I, I have a weekly or mostly weekly mailing list. Uh, I, I have a Patreon. Um, you, can, you can find those things by starting at Twitter or my, or my website. Awesome. Well, this has been great. The hour went really fast like I knew it would. I had so many questions when I finished reading the book. I was like, okay, good. I almost forgot the one last one there about your languages. So um, I'm glad we were able to, to um, squeeze out this time here to, to have this chat. So thank you very much. Oh, John, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. 
Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Dave. Thanks, John.